Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is November the 19th. We are inching towards a Biden presidency. And as we do so, more and more people are beginning to think about America's new, perhaps new relationship with the world. Ed Luce, one of my favorite columnists, a frequent guest on this show, has a new piece in today's FT about Biden's uh, approach to the world and global democracy. Uh, earlier this week, um, we had a show with Norm Ornstein and Jessica Brandt from uh, the Marshall Foundation uh, talking about uh, Biden's supposed global summit for democracy supposed to be held next week. And the implications of, um, of American foreign policy, of course, appear throughout this show. A couple of weeks ago, we had Frank Gus Biggio ex-US soldier on with his new book about the Wolves of Hellman, the experience of what it's like to be a US soldier in Afghanistan. Uh, so how will America's role in the world change? Will there still be wars in the Middle East? Uh, will America reverse its Trumpian isolationism? One guy perfectly situated to talk about this um, is uh, Charles uh, Kupchan. He is the author of a new book, Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. A very timely book, Charles. Tell me about what isolationism exactly is. Well, uh, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, the book is really a history of American isolationism, going back to the founders, in fact, going back to the French and Indian Wars in the 1760s. And I take isolationism to be a strategic doctrine that says that the United States, even as it was expansionist in North America, would essentially go no further than the Pacific coast. Uh, and the founders, even when the country was only the 13 colonies to the east of the Appalachians, envisaged a United States that would spread eastward, excuse me, that would spread westward, that would push uh, the European powers out of the Western Hemisphere, that would push Native Americans out of the way. But as George Washington put it in his farewell address of 1796, commercial relations with everyone, political connections with no one. That's the guiding light for the nation. Uh, and really over the course of the 19th century, the United States did just that. It expanded westward to the Pacific coast but swatted down proposals that came along to expand into the Caribbean, to the Pacific, and to go beyond North America. That, to me, is the heyday of American isolationism. Uh, let, let's be clear, Charles, uh, you're not a supporter of isolationism. You're a, a Washington insider, former uh, advisor to, to Biden. You've worked with him in the past. You may even have a job in the new administration but you're not a supporter of isolationism. You've written a history of it. Is that fair? 
Uh, I wrote a history of it because I felt that Americans needed to know more about isolationism. Many of us, and I'd put myself into this boat, knew a lot about the country since World War II, since Pearl Harbor, an America that is constantly engaged on a global basis. And during the, uh, the 1990s and again after uh, the attacks of September 11 and the wars that started thereafter, I began to wonder whether the globalism of the Cold War era might be the exception and not the rule in American history. And that's when I went back and read a lot about the pre-Pearl Harbor statecraft of the U.S. I'm not someone who believes that the U.S. can or should go back to isolationism, can or should return to some kind of hemispheric redoubt or fortress, but I am someone who believes that the United States has overreached and that our isolationist past can tell us and teach us important things about finding the middle ground between doing too much, which is where I think we've been, and doing too little, which is where we were in the 1930s. Charles, what have you learned about yourself? You're the consummate insider, a Harvard undergraduate, a Oxford graduate. You now are at the Council of Foreign Relations, Georgetown. You know everybody and everyone. Given this, to use the euphemism of a Trumpian interregnum where he really went to war literally and figuratively with guys like you, has your internationalism, your, and maybe I'm being unfair to, 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 to accuse you, if that's the right word, of internationalism, but do you think your broad class, this elite of foreign policy people, do you think that the Trumpian interregnum has, has tempered your internationalism? No, I, I think my internationalism was tempered well before Trump came along. And I started to write this book in 2011, 2012, uh, well before Trump was really on the scene. Uh, and my own experience in the Obama administration working in the White House strengthened my conviction that we need a national debate about the nature of foreign policy. And in some ways, when Trump was reelected, when he was elected, that and then he starts his America first. Era, Charles, the real. <laughs> yeah, well, no, he was not reelected, even though he says Thank he you. was. My, my heart fluttered for a moment. No, no, no. It's a, the view here is the same as the view out on the West Coast. He lost the election. Biden is is soon to take office. But, um, you know, I saw what you're referring to, and that is this tug of war between what I would call the foreign policy establishment and others, including myself. And I would put President Obama in this category, who wanted to try to right size American foreign policy and who wanted to retrench from the Middle East. Let's keep in mind that Trump was not the first one to come along and say, hey, we need to end the forever wars. Obama ran for re-election in 2012 saying, it's time for nation building here at home. He just had a lot of trouble getting out in part because the Islamic State came along. Charles, uh, yeah, yeah, Charles, your book is a good history. Let's, let's have a, a few history lessons. First, sure. very briefly talk about Washington's farewell address. Uh, you quote him to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world was his argument. You say that, that this Washingtonian um, premise really worked in America right up until Pearl Harbor. Is that fair? Well, I would say it, it worked well during the 19th century. Uh, and it helped the United States 
focus on domestic development. It helped the United States stay out of great power politics. We were building roads and railways and canals while other powers were building battleships and seizing colonies. You're and a so revisionist, uh, Charles, on the, the Monroe Doctrine, because when I was a, a schoolboy in England growing up, we were always taught that the Monroe Doctrine was this American colonial document, but you suggest it really isn't. Well, that's one of the things that really surprised me uh, in looking back at American history. Some of the received wisdom, I think, is wrong. The Monroe Doctrine was mostly hot air. Uh, yes, Monroe did say no more new European colonies in the Western Hemisphere, but we really didn't do anything about it until the end of the 19th century. Another one is Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, known as this great wartime leader. Well, from 33, when he started in office, right up until 1941, he was in the isolationist mainstream. He did not want to join World War II. So there's a lot of received wisdom that I think does need a second look, and I try to do that in the book. Charles, would it be fair to say that America had it easy in the 19th century because domestic and foreign policy were combined in this westward expansion? So American colonialism uh, worked itself out and was, uh, excusing the pun, manifested by manifest destiny, a, a kind of a, 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 a colonial approach to the West. You're right to say that America's expansive tendencies played themselves out through westward expansion. And in fact, one of the narratives that emerged in the 1890s about why the United States should take manifest destiny abroad was that the frontier had closed. The U.S. had made it to the Pacific coast. It had pacified North America. Now it was time to take the show on the road. That's the refrain that McKinley used to justify the Spanish-American War. And all of a sudden, we not only kick the Spaniards out of Cuba, but we establish a military occupation of Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, the Philippines, Wake Island, Samoa, Guam. Uh, and so the United States suddenly became an empire, didn't much like it. And that, in many respects, set the stage for the isolationist retreat of the interwar period, which is not something I endorse. In many respects, I think the 1930s was isolationism's darkest hour because the United States ran away from the fascism and Nazism that were sweeping Europe and Asia. Charles, um, you, you write a lot about a term that people use without a lot of thought. You think about it, American exceptionalism. What is that? American exceptionalism basically is a, is a doctrine that says that the United States has been, from its beginning, blazing a new path, is a country that has an exceptional endowment of liberty politically and liberty economically. And this really goes back to the founders and runs right through American history. Uh, and then sometimes it's a justification for expansion. That's been the case since World War II. But interestingly, right through uh, the, the 19th century and into uh, the, the 30s, American exceptionalism was just the opposite. Many people said the United States needs to preserve its unique experiment in the world by standing aloof from the outside world and keeping corruption, illiberalism at bay. Charles, I'd like your take, uh, and, and I'm curious about this. My daughter's at Bryn Mawr, and they're currently on strike getting uh, the university to change the name of one of the buildings, one of which was originally given to Woodrow Wilson. 
I'd like your take on Wilsonianism as this, it seems to me at least, a, a idealistic approach to American foreign policy, but at the same time laced with this terrible racism. Is it possible that, um, that, that American embrace of the world, particularly manifested by someone like Wilson, is also rooted in a, in a unique American evil when it comes to race and slavery? Well, you know, there has been a, a racial element to American exceptionalism right from the beginning, manifest mainly through the idea that the U.S. was populated with a unique grouping of people, Anglo-Saxons. Uh, and there were many who believed that the, that the United States should be a country of Anglo-Saxon whites and blacks and Native Americans and others were not fit to be part of the American experiment. And that strain runs right through American history, including to Donald Trump, who, as you well know, played the nativist card throughout his four years in the presidency. Wilson was full of contradictions. And he was a racist. Uh, excuse me, for those watching this, I just wanted to show uh, Trump's Trump's starring role in this nativist uh, narrative, standing outside the church, waging the Bible in D.C., just down the road from where uh, Charles is talking. Well, you know, and as I was saying, Wilson was full of contradictions. He was a racist and imperialist, but he also set forward what came to be called liberal internationalism. He built the basis for the United States coming out of its isolationist shell and creating what what Roosevelt did, and that is combining American power with multilateralism and international institutions to go abroad and, and to, to fight Nazism and fascism. So Wilson, I think, is a complicated character, a lot of negatives, but a lot of positives. Perhaps like America, uh, perhaps uh, Wilson represents the American exceptionalism that we all know what it means, we just can't define it. Charles, let's talk briefly about a couple of events in the, in the in, well, one event in the 20th century that really changed American history, which is Pearl Harbor. Um, to what extent do you see this as the critical moment in, in, in American history, essentially, when it comes to thinking about the world, the outside world? I, th I think it was a, a break point in the sense that the United States was very engaged in the world from the get-go engaged commercially, engaged culturally. American missionaries were ranging all over the place. But it really wasn't until Pearl Harbor that a consensus emerged about the United States engaging itself in an enduring way in other key areas of the world, in particular in Eurasia. And that's when the doctrine emerged that the United States could not allow a hostile power to dominate Eurasia because it would come to threaten the U.S and its own hemisphere. And that really set the stage for the long era of the Cold War in which you had a bipartisan consensus among Republicans and Democrats that the United States needed to play a leading role. Pearl Harbor gave birth to what we now call Pax Americana. And uh, as our mutual friend Jim Goldgeier has argued, that Pax Americana ended um, with, at least in the beginning, the fall of the, the Berlin Wall. One American historian famously called it the end of history. Is the next key date in American foreign policy history after Pearl Harbor the collapse of the wall? Well, the collapse of the wall in some ways 
was a, a, a turning point that we didn't see as a turning point in the sense that we thought it was, as you just said, the end of history, that ideological divides were over. This was the unipolar moment. In my mind, that's yeah, everyone, when- Everyone becomes America. We already, col uh, you have colonized the West. Now you colonize the rest of the world, right? And we flung open the West. We expanded NATO, the European Union, Russia joined the G7, China joined the WTO. In many respects, I think that's when we got ahead of ourselves. Rather than consolidating after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we expanded. And I think that level of globalization and ideological ambition, and we saw it in spades in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, has led to where we are today, which is a moment in which I think the American people have said, it's enough already. Let's lighten our load abroad. That's what Trump started to do. And my guess is that Biden will continue in the same direction. When I interviewed uh, Gus Biggio, the, uh, the, the, the young man, not so young anymore, from Ohio, who, who fought in Afghanistan and wrote this very interesting book, The Wolves of Helmand, he told me that he signed up, like so many other people, young men in America, the day after 9-11. Um, was 9-11 equivalent to Pearl Harbor in terms of the waking of America up? And is it different in some senses to 9-11 in terms of how America then approached the world? Well, you know, 9-11 was, was certainly a wake-up call in the sense that over the course of the 1990s, the United States did drift. Coverage of international affairs in the media fell off a cliff. And then all of a sudden with 9-11, the country is riveted again with international politics in the Middle East in particular. But fighting extremists, fighting terrorists is a very different kettle of fish than fighting yeah. Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. And also I think some critical mistakes were made. Rather than going after bad guys, we tried to turn Afghanistan and Iraq into Ohio. We tried to turn them into American outposts. And it was a big mistake. It didn't go well. And we're now seeing the, the, the long-term costs of those uh, efforts. And so in many respects, 9-11 appeared at the time to be a Pearl Harbor, but in, in other respects has, has led to, I think, the point at which the United States is, is turning inward and moving back from engagement, particularly in what we call the strategic periphery. Charles, you're not only a historian, as I said at the beginning, you're a practitioner of foreign policy. You were involved in the Clinton administration. Um, and of course, Clinton is famously, when it comes to foreign politics, famously remembered for his uh, engagement and involvement in uh, Southeast Europe, in, in Serbia and Kosovo. How critical is that, do you think, in the reappearance of American isolationism in, in our Trumpian age? Well, you know, it was really during that period that I first begin, began to think about writing this book because I did see Clinton struggle mightily over whether to intervene in the Balkans. And he eventually you did. Were you, were you one of the people who advised him early to get involved? Yes, I was in the NSC at the very beginning. Uh, and when I was there, the U.S. really wasn't involved, either in Bosnia or in Kosovo. That came later. But it gave me a sense of the barriers to involvement in wars that were short of what you might call a vital interest. So I don't think that involvement in Yugoslavia 
is really the, the the nub of the problem. I think I think it's more the overreach in the Middle East, coupled with what we see today, and that is intense political polarization, an economic downturn of a sort that we haven't seen since the 1930s because of the pandemic, and in some ways, obviously, the economic downturn started earlier because of globalization. So I think the country's going through a period of of change stemming more from globalization and the digital era than anything else that is going to reorient its relationship with the outside world. And Trump was more, I think, a symptom of that sense of dislocation and reorientation than he was the cause. He's a symptom, Charles, but he's also one of the players in this new world. A couple of days ago, we had the NYU historian Ruth Ben Giet on the show talking about her a really interesting new book strong men she writes about gaddafi and erdogan and pinochet and orban and of course our old friend uh, vladimir putin uh, the world of the 2020s is the world of strong men doesn't america need to wake up to that it's not the world of george washington or even fdr well you're right that that he was not just a symptom trump was an accelerant uh, and I don't know about you, but I certainly never believed that I would be living through an era here in the United States in which you would have a president that violates the basic guardrails of decency, democracy, and the rule of law. But it's, it's happened. And now we just passed through an election in which quite a few Americans said, you know, we kind of like that. Let's have more. So this is a very strange and worrying moment in history. The pendulum here in the United States, fortunately, has swung back to the political center, but this story is not over yet. We know that because we see the populism in Europe as well as here. We need to figure out the sources of the problem. But does the existence of the Putins and Erdogans and Orbans and Bolsonaros and Dutertes of the world, is that an argument for or against American isolationism? I guess it can be used in either sense. You know, I think it's an argument for engagement because the United States, more than any other country in the world, has been out there trying to push countries in a progressive direction and try to stand by democracy, rule of law. To have an American president who prefers Putin to Merkel and El Sisi to Trudeau is shocking, but that's where we've been. And I think it, it really has put the world backwards. So I think the, the liberal turn that we see going on around the world is a cause for American engagement. That doesn't mean military engagement, but it does mean the US, US has to become, uh, again, a team player and a supporter of Republican values around the world. Charles, let's, let's try to be really honest here. You, you studied at Oxford, your old boss, uh, Bill Clinton studied at Oxford. The history of the relationship between the UK and, and, and the US is summarized by another of my old friends, Ian Baruma, the author of the Churchill Complex about the relationship between the US and the UK. Is the problem with the US that you, you don't get your wisdom from the UK anymore, that we've somehow departed, we've split up, there's been this awful transatlantic divorce? Do we need to get back together again? Well, I don't know where you were born, Andrew, but I detect from your accent a certain bias. Uh, so um, I, I won't I won't delve into into that. But <laughs> yes, there is a connection between the U.S. 
and the UK. And, you know, in some ways, if you were to ask what two countries have most shaped modernity today, it's really been the US and the UK. First, the UK during Pax Britannica, then the US after Pearl Harbor. And right. together, they, they have created this, this globalized world. It, it, it's, it is, I think, remarkable that you now have the US uh, fighting over who's the, who the president is, and the UK is in the process of leaving the European Union. That's just a sense of, of this, uh, the shocking moment at which we're, in which we are finding ourselves. But you, you avoided the question, do, you, do, do younger generations need to go to Oxford and be schooled in, in the history of great power conflict? Are we still, should we be your, your Greece to America's Rome? And, you know, Oxford is a good university. There are good universities everywhere else. No, I mean, I, I don't think that there is some privileged position to the Anglo-American world or the Anglo-American canon particularly today, where our countries are growing more diverse and where globalization is bringing down barriers. Can we learn from history and reading the politics of great powers in European history? Yes. Do we need to go well beyond that? Yes. Charles, we had another distinguished historian, Margaret Macmillan, the Canadian historian on the show a couple of weeks ago, talking about her new book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us. Um, do you think Americans think enough about war, are educated enough about it. We, we send off guys like Gus uh, Biggio to, 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 to Afghanistan to fight these strange dislocating wars. But do we need to pay more attention to wars uh, in the 21st century, particularly at elite universities like Georgetown, where you teach? You know, I think that um, the, the country has an over-militarized foreign policy and that we are too ready to use military force rather than other tools in the toolbox. And I also think that because we do not have conscription today, it's easier for that to happen. You can bet your bottom dollar that if we did have conscription, we would have been out of Afghanistan and Iraq a long time ago because the parents of soldiers would be jumping up and down and screaming. So uh, yes, I, I, I do think that Americans need to be more cognizant of the pros and the cons of war and to broaden the, the, the toolkit. The other, the other thing I'll mention, Andrew, because your question begs this, is we do live in a fragmented, bubbled world. One of the things I regret about the country today is we live in separate spheres. You know, there's red America, blue America. We don't talk to each other. That strikes me as as part of the problem and a problem that we need to overcome. Charles, I've left the most important question to the end, which is of course the China question. Uh, America was perhaps the world's only superpower for, my, uh, for, for the last part of the, the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, but it no longer is the only superpower. The other great power is China, not Russia. Um, given that reality, what do you think America needs to do in terms of its approach to the world, particularly in a Biden presidency? Uh, you know, I agree with you that that the U.S.-China relationship, geopolitically speaking, is the elephant in the room and will define the landscape of the coming decades. And I think it's going to be tough because there are underlying conflicts of interest over trade, 
over human rights, over security, over religion, over minority rights in Xinjiang, those are not going to disappear overnight. I do think that what we've been going through is a China policy that's not a policy. We have tweets, we have impulses, we have gut checks. There is no China policy. And I think what you'll see under Biden is an effort to restart a strategic dialogue, to figure out a policy on security, trade, human rights, Hong Kong, Taiwan, that is more consistent and clear-headed. Now, whether that leads to a better relationship with China certainly remains to be seen. But given the import of this, I do think that we need to concentrate on figuring out how to de-escalate US-China relations. The one thing I would say is we're not going back to the bipolar world of the, of the Cold War. And that's mainly because the world is too globalized. The coupling is not going to happen. And that's probably good news because it means that the, the sinews uh, of trade, of finance, of people, of travel will continue to keep the U.S. and China dealing with each other, even as they try to solve out uh, or solve increasing geopolitical tension. Wise words from Carl, uh, Charles uh, Chan. Uh, his book, uh, his new book, Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World, is similarly wise. And I urge everybody to read it if you want to understand American foreign policy over the last 250 years. Uh, Charles, you're in your office in Washington, D.C. in these strange times. In addition to your new book, what else should be, people be reading as they stuck at home until we all get this supposed vaccine early next year? Well, I, I would say that um, fiction is probably your best bet because it, it, it can help ease the pain and creates distraction, may make you sleep a little better. Uh, I just read a book called Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday that I would uh, strongly recommend. The other piece of nonfiction that I read, and actually I read it in, as I was finishing my book on isolationism, is a book by the historian Andrew Preston, who I believe is located at Cambridge in the UK, uh, a book that's called Sword of Faith. Uh, and it, it's about re the role of religion in American foreign policy over, to, over history. And I found it to be a good, smart read. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.